we're going to jump right in. I don't have a lot of jokes or funny stories to tell you about Colossians. I've been looking forward to preaching Colossians for a while. And, uh, you know, the Lord had me preach, you know, this, this spring or winter through Genesis. And some of that is just hard to preach. And so now we get to come to Colossians. Colossians is one of the prison letters from the Apostle Paul. There's some question about whether he wrote this, whether he wrote Colossians from his first Roman imprisonment, or while he spent three years in Ephesus, he may have written this letter from Ephesus. Um, it actually makes a little bit more sense that he wrote it from his first Roman imprisonment because Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, those three letters kind of tired tied together. That's why I'll put in a plug here. If you're not coming to our growth groups, either on Wednesday night or on Sunday morning, uh, you know, basically on Sunday mornings, our old Sunday school time, it come because you're, you're going to be studying Ephesians, which is a companion letter to Colossians. Paul from prison had all three of these letters delivered at one time uh, to that area in the Laodicean Valley. These two uh, church plants from Colossians and Ephesians, and then uh, the letter to Philemon delivered by Onesimus, his ex-slave, who Paul had won to the Lord. And we don't have time to get into all of that, but it is a great uh, story as well. So Paul's writing this letter back to the Colossians, and his focus is on Christ. And we said it time and again, the supremacy of Christ. You're going to especially see that in the next two weeks in the focus of, of those two messages. But you'll pick up on some of it today. It's all about Jesus. If you're in a feet, if you're in one of the growth groups this morning, Ephesians chapter one verse three is one of my favorite verses as well. That verse is, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every, or has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ." Everything that we need to live a holy life, everything that we need to live an eternal life, is found in Christ. He is the core. He is the center of all whom we worship and all that we're going we're gonna to be talking about. And that's one of the reasons that in our worship service, we want to lift up and, and, and glorify and honor Christ. In Colossians, he, Paul's even going to point out that Jesus was there as a part of creation. He was an agent of creation all the way uh, uh, back in Genesis chapter 1. Jesus was there. The, the Trinity oh, already was at work uh, through Christ the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. So as we delve in here, the focus is going to be on what Christ has accomplished in our lives. Let me read it. We're going to look at the first eight verses today, the greeting and then Paul's thanksgiving. The scripture says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We have heard of your faith in Christ and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. 
So we're just going to walk through this text. This is not a long passage. We got a little bit of the introductory material. I already got some of that out of the way. But here in the first couple of verses, you see uh, just a couple of things I would point out. Uh, Paul is writing this letter. and There's no, no reason to, to uh, think otherwise. There's scholars out there. They like to argue who wrote all these letters. And some will say that one of Paul's disciples wrote it and put Paul's name on it. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church, though he had never been to the Colossian church. He had come to know about the Colossian church through Epaphras, who apparently was their pastor, uh, who had started the church while Paul was in Ephesus. Ephesus and Colossae are not very far apart. And so Paul had probably worked with Epaphras. Epaphras started this church in Colossae. And now Epaphras, this pastor from Colossae, has joined Paul in prison at Rome. Now, prison where Paul was, was he likely on house arrest. So he was allowed to have visitors coming in and out. And so Epaphras was there with him. You see later on in this book, uh, in chapter 4, and then you see over in Philemon, verse 23, a reference to Epaphras being uh, a fellow prisoner in Christ with Paul uh, wherever he was in prison. I believe it was most likely in Rome. And, and Paul writes, he says, I am apostle of Jesus Christ by God's will. He understood that the reason that he was an apostle was not because of any goodness in him. It was because of God's choosing. God had chosen Paul and remember who Paul was. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul was one who early on as a Pharisee wanted to kill the church, to kill Christians. And he was on his way to kill more Christians when God met him in a miraculous way and saved his soul and transformed Paul from being uh, one of the greatest persecutors of the early church to being one of the greatest missionaries of all time. So by the will of God, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he writes to the saints in Christ at Colossae. Now that word and how Paul uses that word saints is very intriguing to me. And it's a little bit confusing because the way that the word saint gets used in our uh, English language and in church history tends to be focused on you know, people that had some very special relationship with God. You could verify some miracle that was done by them. That's one of the rules of the, the Holy Roman Catholic Church to identify someone as saints. But that word, uh, saint here, literally means holy ones. And the, and the idea is that you're set, us, you're set apart for a specific purpose. So the truth is, when Paul writes to the saints at Colossae, he's writing to every believer who has put their faith in Christ and has been washed by the blood of Christ. He even, Paul uses the same word, and this is a, the, the most interesting one to me because he has a lot of problems with the, the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was involved in all kinds of sexual immorality and all kinds of mess going on. He calls the Corinthian believers saints, even though he knew what a mess they were. Well, here's the good news. We, we are, we're made holy and we're set aside for God's use, not by our goodness or not because we're perfect. Paul doesn't call them saints because they were without sin, Paul calls them saints because they were followers of Jesus Christ. So in reality, every single one of you who has put your faith in Christ and chosen to follow him as your Lord and Savior, in God's eyes, you're a saint. You've been made holy and you've been set aside for a particular purpose, for him to use you for his purpose. Now, I know that's a little bit tough. Uh, I can't quite think of people referring to me as Saint Dennis, right? Now, Saint Matthew makes sense, but the problem is he only has one T. 
He spells his name wrong. So how could he be saying that? But the point is, we're not made holy by our goodness or our personality or anything like that. We're considered holy by God when we put our trust in Christ and we've been washed by the blood of Christ. At that point, we become his child. That's where we find our identity. And so when Paul writes to the saints in Christ at Colossae, he's not writing to just one or two of the super Christians at Colossae. He's writing to every one of those believers who's put their faith and trust in Christ because they have been made holy by Christ for his purpose. And then he, he simply ends, this is a traditional greeting, and of course he says that those who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That is a, it's a very traditional greeting that you'll see in all of Paul's letters, but in fact, in a lot of letters of the, the early, uh, of that time period, the first and second century. And then we jump into the text really for today, it's verses three through eight. And this is also a traditional use of uh, a thanksgiving. Most writers in that day, they would give their little introduction, their salutation, their, their greeting, and then they would give, uh, they would give thanks for those whom they're writing, they're writing to. But Paul, when he gives thanks, it, it always has a special twist to it. This, this thanksgiving, verses three through eight, is one sentence in Paul's original language. If you were in growth group this morning, you study Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. That is one sentence in Paul. Paul gets so excited as he's writing this as though he just starts writing and, and, and connecting verbs together. Uh, all of these phrases and are, are connected together, but it's one primary verb. And the primary verb here is we thank God. Paul is writing to the, to the Colossian church and writing to these Christians, and the first thing he comes out of his mouth is we thank God for you. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So I think there's something that we can learn just from verse three. That is Paul, when he thinks about his friends at Colossae, now they're not perfect. In fact, there's some issues that we're gonna deal with as we walk through this letter to the Colossians. One of the issues is, and most scholars believe is a syncretism. They were beginning to accept into the church and kind of conflate some philosophy of the ancient Greeks. And they were conflating some Jewish thought and they were conflating that with what they'd been taught about Christianity. And all of that is creating some bad theology, some bad doctrine. So there were some things going on there where they're not perfect, but Paul, when he looks toward them, he gives thanks for the good things that God is doing in their life. And when does he do it? Well, first of all, he does it always. When Paul thinks about his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, he always has a heart of thanksgiving. I want to pause there for just a minute because I've, I've noticed that, that people tend to fall on two ends of this spectrum. Not, it is a spectrum, so there's some middle ground here. But uh, in fact, I was talking to a friend about this this week. When you think about people, whether you're friends or whether the people you're just getting to know, do you tend to, the, is your first thought all of the negative things or is your first thought all of the good things about them, all of the positive things? Some of us tend to be natural skeptics and we're always seeing that negative. Some of us tend to be natural optimists. Paul seems to, when he thinks of other Christians, he tends to see the good in them. I think that's why. He can see them through Christ's eyes, and he can see the Corinthians or the Colossians as saints. 
even though he knows that they're a mess. I think that, that one of the things that we can learn from this is to have a grateful heart toward one another in Christ, that we can learn to be grateful and generous, but also he does it always. He has this grateful heart every time that he prays for the Colossian church. It doesn't say that he always prays for the Colossian church, but every time he prays for them, he prays for them with a grateful heart, beginning by thanking God for them. Now, he's going to pray other things for them, but first and foremost, he's going to thank God for them. I learned this a long time ago, and I've, I've shared it uh, with other believers. I mean, folks that I know, they, maybe they're struggling with a, with a personality, or they're struggling with a, another believer in the church, and they're brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're just really struggling. One of my encouragements is always go to them and pray with them. It's one thing to pray for that person. As you pray for somebody, it softens your heart toward them. But if you're able to go to them and pray with them and hear their heart as they cry out to God and they hear your heart as you cry out to God, you'll find that your heart is being made tender toward one another in Christ. Thanksgiving and prayer in that first, in verse three. Now we get into the meat of this text and, and, uh, Somebody asked me this morning, well, you're going to be talking up there in the baptistry and you're going to be preaching. Are we going to be here two hours? No, we're not. Let's move through this quickly, though. Paul, what is the, the, the foundational reason for Paul's thanksgiving for them? Verse 4, he says, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of the saints. The first thing that he points out is they, they knew Jesus, and he had heard of their faith that they had put in the Savior. And so Paul is thankful for these people in Colossae who had, whether they were perfect or imperfect, whether they were struggling with their theology, he understands that they're brothers and sisters in Christ because they had put their trust in Christ the Savior. I'm telling you, it would go a long way toward healing a lot of division in churches and denominations and workplaces and all of those places if we would learn to look toward each other with thanksgiving, especially when we recognize that even though we may disagree on some things, if we are, are committed to the same Jesus, if we have a relationship with the same Savior, we have a foundation that we can build on. And so Paul is grateful for their faith in Christ Jesus. The second is he's thankful for their love for other believers. So you put these two together, and these are two pretty foundational parts of our relationship. First of all, we need to love the Lord with all of our heart. And then second of all, we need to love each other. We put our faith and trust in Christ, and we love other believers. We're already on the right track. It's not that complicated, is it? A lot like what Jesus said. You can take all of the law, all the doctrine, everything, you boil it down into two things, love God and love your neighbor, right? If we can, if we can get on that track, and so Paul encourages them and is giving thanks because, first of all, he's seen their faith. Second of all, their faith extended toward Christ, but he's seen their love expressed toward one another. So he sees that vertical relationship they have, and he sees that horizontal relationship that they have with each other, that they're loving each other. Those two things, though, are built on an important foundation. You can have faith 
in all kinds of random things. But if your faith is not built on a solid foundation, it won't stand. You can try to love your neighbor, and this is where a lot of Christians, a lot of churches, a lot of social ministries go wrong. You, you can love people and focus on taking care of people's physical needs, okay? We, we want to serve people that are hurting. We want to serve people that are hungry. We want to we serve at the food kitchens. We want to take care of physical needs of people in our community. That's why we have the back-to-school rally. That's why we, we reach out to families at Christmas time who need help with food. That's why we have our hope fund. That's why we, we do those things, because God's called us to, to love those who are hurting and to feed those who are hungry and to care for those who are in need. But if you feed somebody every day of their life until they take their last breath on this earth, but you've never pointed them to Jesus, you've done them a disservice. Their bellies will be full and their needs may be met physically, but when they take their last breath on this earth, they're going to wake up and say, why didn't you tell me about the Savior? On the other side of that, if all you do is harp on doctrine, you need to have faith in Christ, but you don't show the love of Christ that Christ showed, you're going you're gonna to be so heavenly-minded, as you've heard it said, that you're no earthly good. God has called us to trust Christ, walk with Christ, and to serve and to love those around us. But that has to be built on a solid rock. And that rock, that foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. And that's what Paul says here. And this is why Paul is really thankful for what he sees going on in Colossae. We've heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have of the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven that you already heard about this hope and the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. The foundation of their, of their faith in God, the foundation of their service to, the other, to, to one another is the hope that they have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the fact that they've come to know that in Christ there is hope, and it's a real hope. It's not a I, I wish that it might happen someday kind of hope. In Christ, they've come to understand that Jesus died, he rose again, and he's coming back, and then when I put my faith and trust in Christ, he not only gives me, fills my life with purpose and hope today, he gives me life eternal. And so in Christ... In the, in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that roots us and grounds us into a life with him, we have something that we can build upon. That's where our faith comes alive. If Jesus had not rose up out of the grave, our faith would be worthless, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We'd be people to be pitied. It is, it is the, our faith in the gospel. It's our, our, the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died, he rose again, and he's coming back, that we've invested our lives in, that we've trusted, that gives our faith and our hope, I mean, our, our faith and our love, a solid foundation. Hear that again. It is our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ that lays the foundation of our faith in God and our love and service to one another. It is the gospel, the truth, 
that God sent his son to die for my sin so that I could be forgiven, so that I could be set free from not only the, the wrath of God, but I could be set free from the bondage to sin so that I could live a life differently for however many days I have left on this earth, and I get to live a life eternally. That sets me free. Why is it that I can invest my life in sharing the good news or serving other people? It's because this life is not it. This isn't the end. I shared that song at mom's service of the guy that had MS, and he was dying, and he knew it. There was a great quote in that song that the songwriter got from him. The songwriter is Matthew West, and the, the, the quote was, this, what a wonderful life this is. This life is always wonderful, but this life, no, this life isn't always wonderful, but what a wonderful life it is. That's one of the quotes. That's the tag. This life isn't always wonderful, but what a wonderful life it is. Later on in the song, he says, this life isn't always wonderful, but this life isn't all there is. Our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that this life that we walk with on this earth, whether the Lord gives us 60 years or he blesses us with 80 years or 90 years, however many years the Lord gives us on this earth, this isn't all there is. And our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a foundation upon which we can walk by faith and we can serve others knowing that God has more for us, not just in this life, but also in the next. It is in Christ that we find the ability to, to walk in hope. We have a hope, first of all, that is sure. It's not simply a wish. Our hope is assured because of what happened on Easter. Okay, We talked about this last week, so I'm not going to get back into last week's sermon. But Paul wrote to the Thessalonians that the reason that you have hope is because Jesus died and Jesus rose again up out of the grave. His resurrection gives you assurance of his hope. Just as sure as Jesus died and rose again, so also with you, will you who have died in Christ be resurrected. Our hope is sure. Why that matters is because in our English language, we often use the word hope like this. Well, Susan will, you know, I'll just pick something out, you know, Susan will say, man, you know, I, I just believe you're going to get to shoot a great deer this year. And I might say, well, I hope so. We use that language, that kind of language all the time. And what we mean by that is, well, maybe we will, maybe it won't. I hope so. It's a wish. The hope that we're talking about in the gospel is not a wish. It's a certainty. Because Jesus rose again, our wish has been granted. We have an opportunity for eternal life in him. And it comes in Christ. Our hope is sure. Paul here, he, he says that that hope is reserved in heaven. The gospel has come to you. It's bearing fruit and growth all over the world. Back up to verse 5, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. Paul indicates that our hope is guaranteed. It's reserved in heaven. It, it, it can't be stolen. It can't be taken away from us. It can't be short-circuited. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, your hope is assured because it is reserved for you in heaven. We have a hope that is grounded, and this is what we're getting into. That hope is grounded because it is rooted in the gospel that has come to you. And that gospel, Paul goes on to say, is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. 
So the third thing I want you to hear about this hope is you have a hope in you that is worth sharing. That gospel, that hope that you have in the gospel is being shared all over the world and it's bearing fruit and it's growing. And then Paul specifically points out the fact that Epaphras is one of the guys doing it. Epaphras, who was one of you, he says here in this text, Epaphras, who grew up in, in, in your community, who grew up in your church, he's one of the guys who's out there telling everybody. He's one of the guys that is sharing the gospel. And so Paul, through this, emphasizes three things about our hope. Our hope is sure, our hope is grounded, and our hope is worth sharing. Get that. Our hope is certain. It's sure. It's well-grounded because it's rooted in the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it is worth sharing. As you get to the end of Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to cheat and look ahead for a little bit because this is one of my favorite verses. And he talks about hope in Colossians 1, 26 and 27. There, Paul points out the fact that uh, this hope is something that that the, the world has been yearning for. In fact, specifically, the Gentiles have been longing to hear this message. The Jews were the people of God, and, and, and they had that hope of God. They had that hope of, of the promise that he had made to them. And ultimately, their job, without getting into a whole bunch of Old Testament theology, but the job of the, of the Jewish people to begin with was were to be priest, a holy nation for God. They were supposed to go out and tell other nations about God and about his, his love and his forgiveness. In fact, you see it most clearly expressed in the story of Jonah. <laughs> go tell the Assyrians uh, that they need to repent and return to, and turn to God, turn to, the, turn to Yahweh. Jonah, Jonah didn't want to do it, right? And so you have that whole, whole issue. Jonah tries to escape. He gets thrown in the ocean swallowed by a fish, spit out on shore, and God said, you're going to do it now? You know? So he does. He goes to Nineveh, the, the capital city, the Assyrian Empire, and he reluctantly walks through town sharing the gospel. That's what the Jews were supposed to be doing all along. They were supposed to be those people who had a special relationship with God, and they were supposed to declare that message to everyone else who the one true living God was. And so Paul writes these words at the end of Colossians 1, he says, this is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now it's being revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. So this is a beautiful, mysterious, glorious thing that God's been wanting the whole world to hear, that God's been wanting the whole world to know. And, and now Paul says, it's time. The Lord has, has opened the gate so that, that that message, that mystery could be shared. What is that mystery? Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you is your hope. There's no hope outside of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Peter was asked how, by, by the people who he's preaching to in Acts, how might I come to, how might I be saved? And Jesus, uh, Peter said, there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved other than Jesus. Jesus is our hope. He is the hope of glory. This world will offer you all kinds of hope. It'll offer you hope in a retirement package. 
what happens to a retirement package when the economy goes under? It'll offer you hope in a nation that might declare itself a godly nation. But what happens when that nation turns its back on God? This world will offer hope in all kinds of areas. But hope in this world is always going to be fleeting and impossible to grasp. Hope in this world is wishing. Hope rooted and founded in the gospel of Jesus Christ is certain. So here's the good news of this text as we move forward. Colossians is going to magnify the name of Jesus time and time again. Susan and I had a, a very, one of those times in our life where we were just very tender. It was toward the end of Katie's life. The Lord had allowed us to go to a Billy Graham School of Evangelism, a week-long event in, in Denver, Colorado, where we learned how to share the gospel better, but it was a great, worshipful experience for us. And at the Billy Graham School of Evangelism, there was a, a, a couple who traveled at that point with Franklin Graham to all of his crusades, and they'd written a song called My Hope. And I want to tell you that that song for me, every time I hear those words, of course, it takes me back to that time. That's part of the emotional connection. But the simple declaration of that song is my hope is in the Lord from this time on and evermore. So I ask you, where is your hope? My hope is in the Lord. My hope is in the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that, my hope is certain. Hope without a firm foundation, it's just simply a wish. Hope grounded in the gospel is a foundation upon which you can build a life and live for eternity. Hope grounded in the gospel will fill your life with purpose and meaning because it's rooted in something that is worth sharing with others. Where is your hope? Are you finding your hope in the things of this world? Are you finding your hope in property or jobs or finances? Or are you rooting your hope, your hope for your future? and your life on this earth in the person of Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Christ. My hope, I've made that decision a long time ago, and I have to remake the decision every once in a while because I get derailed and get off track. But my hope is in Christ. And I believe that that provides a certainty, a rock upon which a life can be established. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.